Hello, everyone. It's great to be with you as we continue our teaching series on Mark's Gospel. Today, we're going to look at Mark chapters 9 and 10, and we're going to skip around these chapters a fair bit. So just keep your Bible or your phone open to check on things as we go along. And let's begin with this. So a few days back, I was on Facebook, and an ad popped up about Masterclass. Now, I'm sure some of you know what Masterclass is. In fact, I'm guessing that some of you have checked it out. Masterclass offers video lessons online from masters of their craft. Famous authors, world-class chefs, superstar athletes, award-winning actors. Learn from the world's best is the Masterclass motto. They're selling this idea that you can be as successful as people who are the best at what they do. And the videos are Hollywood quality with mood lighting and just enough props or people to draw you into a personal encounter with a successful, famous person. And who knows? Maybe celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay can turn my craft dinner into gourmet mac and cheese. Or maybe if I pay close enough attention to Grandmaster Gary Kasparov, someone will make a Pons Gambit movie about me someday. Who knows? But jokes aside... Masterclass does have its appeal. People who have had great success can teach us things, not just the technical how-tos of their craft, but also life lessons they've gained along the way that have allowed them to flourish at what they do. Well, you know, Jesus, the master teacher, could easily offer a masterclass. In fact, let me suggest to you that Mark chapters 9 and 10 is a masterpiece, a masterclass for the ages on discipleship, on what it really means to follow him. And unlike masterclass online, it's free and open to us all. Mark's gospel makes a dramatic shift in chapters 9 and 10. And just like back in Mark chapter 1, it begins with a supernatural God moment. In Mark 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain, and there suddenly, verses 2 and 3, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white. Transfigured comes from a Greek word meaning to change into another form. So in this moment, the human Jesus supernaturally changes. Peter, James, and John glimpse Jesus as God. Now a lot more goes on here. There are Old Testament echoes all over this transfiguration experience. But let's skip over those and just focus on verse 7. A cloud appeared, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. We've heard that voice before, haven't we? Just like in Mark 1, God the Father again speaks, blessing and commissioning Jesus as he starts his journey towards Jerusalem to reveal what the Messiah actually came to do. But full confession, there's a detail in verse 7 I left out. Because you see, God the Father speaks to Jesus, this is my son whom I love, but he also commands Peter, James, and John with these words, listen to him. Now, why on earth did God the Father say this? Well, because the disciples are not listening to Jesus. Let me explain. Jesus' teaching in Mark 9 and 10 is framed by three predictions. All three share a basic similarity. First of all, in all three, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. 
a reference to Daniel chapter 7, which talks about a son of man, divine in nature and and greater than King David, who will someday rule all people, all nations forever, an all-powerful divine Messiah. But then Jesus says that this all-powerful son of man will be delivered into the hands of others who will torture and kill him. Then, three days later, he'll rise from the dead. Now remember, Jesus' disciples know who he is, the Messiah. Pastor Rob talked about this last Sunday, about Peter's confession in Mark 8, verse 29. You are the Christ. But as Rob also mentioned in Mark 8, after Jesus predicts that the Messiah must suffer and die, Peter, verse 32, began to rebuke him. From you are the Christ to how dare you, Jesus. What's going on here? Jewish people, the disciples included, held to a popular belief about the Messiah. Living under the brutal power of Rome, they were desperate for a political Messiah to save them. Daniel's words about a son of man, they turned them into a common belief that God would send a superman Messiah who'd conquer the Romans and turn Israel into an earthly paradise. Folks, there was no room in their thinking for an all-powerful son of man Messiah who could die. It made no sense. That's why Peter reacts. Well, on the surface at least, that's why he reacts. But there's more going on here. You see, the disciples have a sin problem, a vested personal interest in Jesus being that superman son of man. They don't hear what he's saying about his death because they choose not to listen. Look, folks, before we go any further, let me say this. Thank God for the disciples. Their flaws and failures are on full display in Mark's gospel. Sometimes it's even funny. But in the disciples, we see us, don't we? You and me. I also hope that we see Jesus patiently growing their faith, overcoming their weaknesses. So as we continue now, imagine that you are one of them and that Jesus' masterclass is for you. Okay, back to the disciples' sin problem. We get a first hint after Jesus' second prediction. The disciples are arguing behind Jesus' back as they walk towards Capernaum. When they arrive there, he asks them, chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest. After Jesus' third prediction, there's no more keeping quiet. Two disciples, James and John, walk right up to Jesus and demand, chapter 10, verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Folks, see what's going on here? James and John believe that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to take power from Rome. And when he does, James and John want a guarantee that they'll be at his side, men of influence, as he rules. And the rest of the disciples, chapter 10, verse 41, they became indignant with James and John. Now let's be clear, it's not that they're more spiritual. Remember, they'd all been arguing about who was the greatest. They are indignant that is, mad and jealous, because James and John got to Jesus first. The disciples are locked in a prideful, self-centered, 
contest with each other to be number one in Jesus' political kingdom to come. Now, Jesus is fully aware of this, of course, and he's determined with, the, with Jerusalem and the cross in sight to correct his disciples' spiritually misguided ways. And he does this, first of all, by framing his masterclass with two important scripture passages. The first is Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Guess what? The disciples have it all wrong. A Jesus follower never seeks to be number one. Never. Doing what's best for me is the opposite of denying myself and just isn't part of life in God's kingdom. In fact, a Jesus follower must take up their cross. Remember, Jesus says those words with his own crucifixion in sight. So he's saying to his disciples, to you and to me, put selfish, I'm number one thinking behind you. Even be willing to suffer and die for God, just like I will. Okay, time out. Think about that. Jesus intentionally sets an impossibly high bar here because he's challenging you and me as we journey with him towards Jerusalem to examine our hearts. Jesus is asking, what's in your heart that is preventing you from completely committing to me? The second scripture passage is Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 45. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus again reminds his disciples that doing what's best for me just doesn't belong in God's kingdom. No, we are called to serve. In fact, to submit to each other like a powerless slave submits to his master, knowing that as we do, we follow in the footsteps of the Son of Man who goes with a servant's heart to a slave's death on the cross. Jesus, the master teacher, also uses children for an object lesson to bring home the point he's making here. Twice in Mark 9, verses 35 to 37, and chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, Jesus welcomes, embraces, and blesses children while he teaches. Now, let's be clear. These stories are often portrayed as if Jesus is the world's greatest dad ever who welcomes all the sweet children of the world into his arms to shrieks of laughter and fun, like how the slide on the screen depicts him. Now, now look, of course Jesus loved children, and he would have made a great dad. But super, but super dad Jesus is not really what's going on here. Remember what Jesus is talking about. Put aside doing what's best for me and embrace servanthood and sacrifice instead. It might come as a surprise to us since we live in a society where children have rights backed up by law. But in the Palestine of Jesus' day, children did not have rights. They were socially insignificant and legally powerless, completely dependent on others to survive in a way that we can't even fathom in the Canada of today. 
So with that in mind, look at what Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 37. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Here's what Jesus is saying, and also what he demonstrates by welcoming and blessing the children. He's saying, do you really want to be great? Well then, be humble. Be prepared to go low enough in your life that you can reach out with a servant's heart to even welcome and honor the most insignificant people out there, the forgotten, knowing that as you do, you actually welcome me. Then Jesus goes a step further. Chapter 10, verse 15. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Here's what Jesus is saying. How do you get into God's kingdom? By again humbling yourself. Just as a lowly child completely depends on others for hope, you must get to that place where you realize how utterly powerless you actually are and how completely you must depend on God's mercies in spiritual matters of the heart. Okay, folks, deep breath. This is challenging stuff. Right about now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, wow, this master class is way too demanding. Put aside what's best for me, embrace servanthood and sacrifice, live in humble dependence on God, humbly care for the forgotten. Lord, this is so much to ask. I can't do it. Well, let me give you a word of encouragement. You are part of a church that lives this way. I see a humble servant's heart faith here at Rivercross every day. I see sacrificial living happening here all the time. I see people openly dependent on God and openly caring for the forgotten ones in our world. Now, you and me, we may not always get it right. I know I certainly don't. But God is alive in this church, blessing us. And you and I are a part of it. You know, maybe we are taking these life lessons from Jesus to heart more than we realize. But there's always room for improvement, isn't there? As we pursue our call to be humble servants living in complete dependence on God. So let's look now at two masterclass encounters where Jesus offers tips on how to do this. The first involves a boy whom Jesus heals. Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, has just returned from the transfiguration. They see the other disciples arguing with teachers of the law. Jesus walks up to the teachers and asks, chapter 9, verse 16, what are you arguing with them about? Before they can answer, a man interrupts, verses 17 and 18. Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Jesus and this boy's father then have a conversation during which Jesus probes his faith, verses 22 to 24. The father said to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. This father has a fragile but honest faith. And that is enough for Jesus. He heals his son. Now, obviously, this healing benefited the boy and his father, but that back and forth between the father and Jesus, it was actually for the disciples' spiritual benefit. 
You see, at this moment, the disciples don't even have as much fragile faith as his father. Their faith is almost no faith at all. Let me explain. After the healing, the disciples asked Jesus why they failed to heal the boy while Jesus could. Verse 28, they're honestly puzzled. Now remember, in Mark chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus commissions his disciples to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And in chapter 6, they do just that. Verse 13, they drove out many demons. So the disciples have done this before, which means that they should have been able to now. Yet they can't heal this boy. Why? Jesus explains, verse 29, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, a word of caution here. Jesus isn't saying that this is a special kind of spirit that only he is uniquely empowered to cast out. He's also not saying that you must always pray right before casting out a demon. In fact, in this story, verse 25, Jesus doesn't pray. He simply rebukes and commands the spirit to leave. No, instead, Jesus is reminding the disciples that what is most important in life is to always remain connected to God's power through a life pattern of prayerful faith in God. That way, you'll always act in God's power in every situation, including when you come face to face with evil, like in this story. Look, folks, The disciples already know this, or at least they should. Jesus modeled this pattern of prayerful faith for them. Mark's gospel throughout describes many times when Jesus drew back from his work to prayerfully commune in deep friendship with God. Not only that, he taught his disciples to do this too. But in this story, the disciples are pridefully caught up in themselves. There's that, aren't we the greatest thing again? They believe too much in themselves and not enough in God. Verse 23, everything is possible for one who believes. Well, at this moment, nothing is possible for the disciples because they no longer believe. They've stopped prayerfully connecting to God's power. They've stopped living as humble servants who depend on God. And they fail to heal the boy. So the disciples needed a master class wake-up call to get their priorities sorted out. And how about you? How is your pattern of prayerful faith in God doing these days? Honestly, after a full year of pandemic angst. I know many are struggling. I know I have struggled to keep intentionally in touch with God, to act out of God's power through it all. Well, let me remind us all that Easter is coming. We're on the journey with Jesus towards it right now. So let's use this Easter as a season for renewal. Let's reestablish a pattern of prayerful faith in our lives. And at Rivercross, we want to help you. This church will come alive during Easter week with spiritual renewal opportunities, online devotions, prayer times, family events, worship. Check out our website or call the church and get involved. Now let's turn to the second masterclass encounter, Jesus' encounter with the so-called rich young ruler. Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem when chapter 10, verse 17, a man ran up and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
It's an honest question from a man looking for answers. But he does have a character flaw. Remember his question, what must I do? You see, this man is a pleaser. He believes that he can do things to get people to like him and to get God to like him too. Jesus picks up on this and pushes back, basically saying in verse 19, okay, well, if doing good is your standard, let's see how you are doing with the Ten Commandments. And let's start with these commands about murder, adultery, stealing, saying false things, defrauding others, and honoring your parents. To which the man predictably responds, verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Maybe this man should have paused to think before giving an answer just to please the teacher. Because he misses something. Jesus asked a question before listing those commands. Verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is reframing the conversation. The man thinks Jesus is good and he himself is good because they both do everything right. But Jesus points out that when it comes to good, God is the standard. And God isn't good because he's done things right. No, God is good simply because of who he is. Goodness is a character issue, not an action issue. God looks at our heart, our motivations, to see if we are actually good. And in this story, Jesus, God the Son, does look into this man's heart. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. The Greek word for look actually means a penetrating gaze. So Jesus looks deep into this man's soul, not to judge and shame him. No, with compassion, he loved him. Jesus is looking with love on a needy sinner to see what's in his heart. Why? to help him sort his priorities out. Verses 21 and 22. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, Jesus' penetrating gaze reveals that this man is holding tightly to his money and the big-shot status and security it provides. Or, to put it another way, he might have been obeying some of God's commands, but he's gone missing on one of the big ones. Commandment number one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Wealth is the God that this man actually serves. And it's just got to go. It's getting in the way. Although he looked like he was doing all the right things, his heart says otherwise. So Jesus says, give up your wealth, give up your status, and hold tightly to God instead. God wants it all. We are called to complete dependence on God, to put aside everything that gets in the way, and to live with a humble servant's heart in a life pattern of sacrifice in God's kingdom, which should give us all pause for thought. What is the one thing in your heart that's holding you back from completely surrendering to God right now?
I encourage us all to take time to think about that. Back to the story. Jesus wants this man, the rich young ruler, to wrestle with his teaching, but he also wants his disciples to think about it too. So he now creates a teachable moment for them. Chapter 10, verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Look, Jesus means exactly what he says. He's talking about a great big camel going through the tiny hole for thread on a needle, which should give us some sympathy for the poor camel. It's a shock value statement designed to get a reaction, and it does. Twice in verses 24 and 26, the disciples are amazed by what Jesus said. Jewish society in Jesus' day was built on a tradition of religious laws called the Holiness Code. Without getting into detail, this code was all about doing the right thing to gain God's favor. So, that, so with that as their reference point, people just assume that God must be smiling on the wealthy. Their money and possessions must surely be a sign of God's favor, a blessing from God for living right, keeping the code. That's why the disciples are amazed and exclaim in verse 26, Well then, who can be saved? Because in this moment, Jesus has thrown everything they believe out the window. Jesus is saying that it is as impossible to earn your way to heaven through holy living as it is for a camel to squeeze through a needle. That instead, we must totally surrender our hearts to God and live our days in God's mercies. But that's a wonderful place to be because it's the place of grace. Verse 27, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Remember, Jesus on the road to the cross speaks those words. Folks, God is equal to whatever is in our hearts. The God of the impossible, the one who after three days will rise again, can and will overcome it, offering a life of eternal hope for us all. Folks, there's so much rich teaching in Jesus' discipleship masterclass in Mark chapters 9 and 10. I invite you to go read it this week. Let the words of Jesus make their way into your heart. Let them sit there. Prayerfully reflect on them. And then surrender yourself to the God of the impossible, in whose power and with whose help you go out as a Jesus follower to face this world. Let's pray together. God, in this moment right now, we declare that our hearts belong to you. We put aside all our false gods and commit ourselves to living only with you, seeking prayerfully to walk with you each day and honoring your call through lives of humble service so that in our example, people see you, the one who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God, this Easter, may this be the story of our lives as we choose to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.